0: Our Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, in light of your your grace and mercy towards us, your, what can we do? Lord, we we were not worthy. We did not earn or deserve your your grace. We are amazed by your abundant, overwhelming, and amazing grace towards us in Christ Jesus. So what can we do but offer you praise? Lord, receive our our adoration, our worship, our honor and glory that you you deserve. May you receive our worship. May you receive the, the hearts in which we offer to you as we hear your word. May you receive our lives as we offer to you to submit to your word that we would hear what you have to say, and that we would examine our own lives in light of it and live in accordance with your way. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. Thank you for your word now as we open up your book. We ask that your spirit would fill us and guide us into your truths. We pray that your word uh, would uh, go forth and not return void that you would cause it to accomplish that which you purposed it to do in every hearer of your word this morning. We look to you expectantly to hear what you have to say. Oh, God, give us your food. Give us your word. Grow in us a love for Christ, a love for you, as we hear from the book of Numbers this morning. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers again this morning, Numbers chapter 17, Numbers chapter 17, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We're continuing our series through this uh, book, Numbers 17, and um, we're almost halfway through this book, Numbers chapter 17. wise uh, king solomon uh, writes in ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 these words which uh, we actually heard our pastor ray preach from uh, not too long ago that is this it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart Live long enough and you discover the wisdom of this verse. That when there is death around us, those are the moments that our hearts are most sensitive to hearing God's truths. The closer the death, the more sensitive we hear. As we arrive at number 17... 14,700 bodies lay dead among the Israelite camp. The result of the plague that God's wrath had sent forth for their rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And were it not for Moses and Aaron, the whole nation would have been consumed, all two million of them. The day before that, 250 leading men of Israel, along with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, had also died, consumed by fire, and swallowed up alive into the ground, respectively, also for their rebellion against God's servants. The nation at this moment is is grieving. It's reeling at the loss of life. But it's a grieving nation that was ready to hear God's truths. Chapter 17 is God's revelation to the sons of Israel following this great loss of life. And if it, what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.2 is true, the nation was ready to hear what God had to say. Because when they, as they found out, when they didn't, there was great loss of life. Though they have rebelled against him, God, we find, does not forsake them. His message comes in the form of a miraculous sign from a rod of wood belonging to Aaron. And in this miracle, God affirms his choice of Aaron as his high priest, that Aaron is his chosen one to act as an intermediary, mediator between man, Israel, and God, who is holy. And in this miracle that we often call the rod of Aaron, or Aaron's rod, or Aaron's staff, in this miracle, we see how God affirms his choice of Aaron as his high priest, his chosen high priest, Further affirming for not only that generation, but all future generations that would read this scripture of the need for the people of God of a mediator who would stand between life and death, who would intercede for sinners, sinners like you and me today. As we study this passage this morning, it's a pretty short chapter, 13 verses. I pray that it may serve to encourage you and me to walk by faith in our mediator, Jesus Christ, who came to intercede for us. A simple outline we're going to look at this morning as we walk through this story. It's a story that most people, you probably would have learned if you grew up in the church, because it's a, one of those uh, miraculous stories that uh, every kid learns along the way. And as we're going to break it into three parts, and we find that there, are, as this passage we see three effects of this miraculous sign of the rod of Aaron, three effects of the rod of Aaron that affirm basically God's choice of a chosen priest to intercede for God's people. And in the case of Numbers, particularly historically in Numbers 17, it is that we see that it's the choice of Aaron, but I hope as we understand how Aaron, Aaron, with progressive revelation and understanding Aaron's role as a type of Christ, that we see that it's really a reminder to us, it foreshadows to us of the need for the ultimate high priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus, right? Who came to intercede for all of us. So let's walk through this story and let's hear and learn from uh, this story of the rod of Aaron. First of all, we see effect number one, effect number one of of the rod of Aaron is this, that it affirms God's choice of Aaron. It affirms God's choice of Aaron. And let's read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household, twelve rods from all their leaders according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. And uh, we'll read them a little bit later. But in this whole story, God is particularly affirming the ministry of Aaron. That's what he's doing. There's been rebellion uh, against Aaron, so that's what he is accomplishing by this miraculous event. And even as he's affirming the ministry of Aaron, uh, as we read this, we might ask, one might ask, well, what about Moses? Why Why isn't Moses' ministry being affirmed? Why isn't this about him? Doesn't Moses' ministry need to be also you know, uh, uh, propped up and by God, affirmed by God? Well, the answer is that the Lord's choice of Moses is essentially self-evident. It's one of those self-evident truths because no one else does the Lord speak to as he speaks to Moses, right? Uh, no one else can approach the Lord's presence in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle as Moses does, right? He alone hears from God. He alone is able to approach from God, not just once a year, but any time the Lord calls him, in fact. So Moses' ministry is essentially self-evident, and we see that reminder even throughout this passage. But anyways, the focus here is on Aaron. And again, the Lord, we see here, speaks to Moses to speak to the sons of Israel. Though they rebelled, God is a God of loving faithfulness. He does not forsake Israel. He doesn't say, you know, you've sinned enough. I'm I'm just going to turn my back on you. He loves them, and he still speaks to them and gives them his truth. And here's the word which they need. And it's exactly what their hearts are prepared for after the several days of death among them. They are told to gather from each tribe one rod, or some your translations have staff. If it's a staff, it'd be a very short staff, probably about four feet, because we know that eventually this is going to be placed on the ark or so. So one rod, one staff, and either translation is fine. And there would be a single rod for each leader of their father's households. Uh, Depending on context, in fact, it's interesting that the word for, for rod or staff here is also the same word that's translated as tribe. And that's why it says, get one rod for each father's household instead of one rod for each tribe. Because they would be, basically this would be the same word. Uh, and so just to, as, writing, as the, uh, Moses is writing this to avoid confusion, he uses the phrase father's household. The wording is reminiscent of chapter 1, when Moses was instructed to number all the fighting men of Israel. And there he was assisted by a man of each tribe, each one of his father's household. It's likely that the leaders mentioned in chapter 1, if you recall there, you go back there, are the, the very likely the very names that are written down here on these rods. There would be 12 rods representing the 12 tribes with the name of each of the leader. And you can just go to chapter 1 and see those names. Aaron's name would have written, been written on a 13th rod. There were the 12 tribes. Uh, remember, uh, the Joshua's tribe was divided into Ephraim and Manasseh, the two half-tribes. And so there was a 13th tribe, Levi, and on that rod was the name of Aaron written. The instruction continues, verse 4, that we read in verse 4, that he was to then take that and deposit these rods, these 13 rods, in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony. Notice the significance of the place where these rods are put. It's not just, a, oh, put them in a bag somewhere, uh, put them, dig them underneath the ground, put them on the top of a mountain. No, it, it's very specific, this place. The location is, is intended to be a part of the visual lesson that Israel is to learn from this. It's not anywhere that's common, anywhere that's accessible to anyone. But it's the holiest place of all in the camp of Israel. It's in the tent of meeting, the, the tabernacle, where only Levites and priests could approach. And if you know the tabernacle, particularly in the, in the tent itself, There's two places, there's the holy place, but it's not there in the holy place, where a priest could enter twice a day. But it's inside, further inside the tent, in the holy of holies, in front of the testimony. It's in front of, basically, uh, the ark. This word, testimony, refers essentially to the Ten Commandments, to the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments are written on the two stone tablets, in Exodus twenty-five sixteen, God directed Moses to put into the ark the, of the ark the testimony which I shall give to you. And then later on chapter thirty-one, He gives him the two tablets which He was to get put into the ark. Uh, Exodus thirty-one eighteen, we particularly read. Uh, I haven't here, but it reads this. When he, that is God, had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So... God, was, God had given Moses these two tablets, and they, and they were called the testimony, and that's why, because they were put into the ark, the ark is sometimes called the ark of testimony. Even the tent of meeting is sometimes called the tent of testimony, because that is where the testimony is. That's where God's law, in the, symbolized by the two tablets, was placed. It's ultimately a symbol of God's presence. The rods were to be placed before the Ten Commandments, which were placed inside the ark of the covenant was covered by the mercy seat above which those two cherubim uh, uh, spread their wings which there right above that mercy seat was God's presence manifested in Israel these rods were placed in the only place on earth where it could be as close to God as possible you know how it is how it used to be one would basically place their hands on the bible as they as they make an oath to make an oath and it was reminded that what was about to take place was something that was witnessed by god and the test of Aaron's rod is essentially by being placed in before the ark of testimony in the ark of testimony is is or being placed before the ark of testimony uh, they're not inside yet all 13 that are placed before it is witnessed by god God is essentially saying what is, what is going to happen, what's going to be a result of this test, is going to be something that He Himself is a witness of. What He, he is essentially witnessing to Himself, to His own words. What He says is true, and what, what comes out of the result, what the effects of this uh, miracle are God's truths. So He continues, the Lord continues with the instruction in verses 5 through 5 and on. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I, will choose, whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. So God promises that the rod of his chosen man will sprout. God is going to miraculously cause a a dead piece of wood, this rod, a piece of wood branch that was shaped into a rod or a staff, basically, no longer, that does not grow, is dead, to cause it to grow as if it is alive. It is a miracle that said God causes a dead piece of wood to come to life. His stated purpose for doing so is to lessen the grumbling of the sons of Israel before him, to stop the sons of Israel from grumbling as they have been. They have been grumbling against Moses and Aaron all throughout since chapter, well, throughout the wilderness. They've been grumbling especially, and the grumbling has especially been in danger because God has been dwelling in their midst since the building of the tabernacle. And it's in his hearing and it's, as it's in his hearing, when they grumble and complain against, against Moses and Aaron, they're grumbling and complaining against him. And it is an affront to holy God. And God, in his holiness, punishes sin, disciplines sin. And so this miraculous event would serve to affirm, basically, for them his choice of Aaron as priest, as his chosen leader, his chosen one to act as his interme- intermediary between God and man. It would answer all the rebellious cries to, to let this, them be priests as the 250 tried to. It would answer all those rebellious thoughts of, like, you know, there's somebody better who can lead our nation besides Moses and Aaron, surely. It would answer all those cries, all those grumbling hearts that would question the, the leadership of the nation. It would visibly remind Israel that Aaron was God's chosen servant, simply. And that's God's stated purpose. We're reminded that here, as we will see in the rest of this miracle, that both, not only Aaron, but Moses as well, are both God's chosen servants. And both, they serve a role in the, in the Bible, as you kind of follow through the Bible, Moses being the, God's chosen prophet, Aaron being God's chosen priest. They're both uh, chosen ones by, of God. And, they, of course, they would both, in, each, in their own ways, be types of Christ. They point to Jesus Christ. We read in our call to worship, Isaiah 42, that Christ, the servant of, the Lord, of God, would be known as God's chosen one. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9.35, God declared of Jesus, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God, by affirming Aaron here as his chosen one, God was simply conveying, was conveying to Israel that they should listen to him. They should hear what he has to say. Hear what Aaron says. Here what Moses says, it affirms God's choice, God's choice of them, of Aaron. So as we continue the story, we're going to see the second effect of the, the miracle of the rod of Aaron. And we see that the rod of Aaron secondly sets a sign against rebels. It sets a sign against rebels in verses 8 to 11. Let's look at verse 8 to 9. Now on the next day, again, we see this, uh, the last couple of chapters, we've seen this kind of a... Two-day events, slot two-day events where on the next day something happens. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel. And they looked, and each man Took his rod. On the next day, Moses here once again enters into uh, the tent of meeting, into the holy of holies, where he alone can go. Right, and there in the, the holy of holies are is rod, the rod of Aaron and the twelve other rods of the heads of the tribes of Israel. They're all there, lying on the ground. And there, and Moses probably has even picks it up, can see that there's difference the rod of aaron has somehow has completely transformed god had what did god say god has said that the one the rod of the one whom he chooses would sprout it would grow not only did aaron's rod sprout and grow but it it budded and then it flowered and it bore fruit in this case ripe almonds i don't know about you but I don't think there's any plant that that is in our in our world that will bud and flower and bear fruit all in one day. I have an apple tree outside of my uh, one of my windows. Uh, it's just beginning to flower, you know. But before that, it had budded, and, and then it grew, and now it's it's flowering. And I hope at some point it may produce fruit. But you know what? I'm going to wait until about September before those apples actually show up. But these almonds, this, this almond, this, it was a piece of almond tree that was simply, in one day, overnight, grew, it budded, it flowered, and it bore the fruit of almonds, so the, the produce of almonds. And you can just imagine this, this picture of this rod is just completely budded, and it was just flowered as well as bearing almonds. God had in this miraculous, this is God had accomplished a miraculous event. He had brought a rod of wood that was dead to life and not just, just barely alive, not just a little bit of leaf, you know, like, oh, there's just this tiny little leaf. Oh, there it is. That's the sign. No, it's, it's, it's fully leaved, it's fully blossomed. There's, there's buds everywhere, there's flowers everywhere, and there's like ripe almonds, and it's, it's the best almonds you've ever had because God made these almonds. It was a clear testimony to the 12 leaders that God had affirmed his choice of Aaron of the tribe of Levi as his priest for the nation Israel. Now as for the question of why almonds, uh, rather than some other fruit or nut maybe, there are two reasons that are plausible. And they, the, the significance to almonds, number one, it, we do know that the Hebrew word for almond and the verb to watch are are they they sound similar? They they share the same uh, similar consonants. Um, was, in fact, the Lord Himself uses this play on words in Jeremiah chapter one verses eleven to twelve, where, where the vision of the of a rod of an almond tree symbolized to Jeremiah that the Lord was watching over His word to proclaim it. That basically it's a sign that God's going to complete His word. And since Jeremiah comes after. Uh, exodus you know it, it comes after it's sort of it's probably that jeremiah was or god allowed the imagery be in light of this event that just as surely as god's word will come came true in the budding of this, uh, this uh, of this almond rod uh, so god's word would come true with regards to uh, the, the judgment that was coming upon judah and so that's, there's that picture of, of God watching over his word. And that's, a, that's a one aspect possible even that uh, because of the terminology, that's something that uh, was, could even be conveyed here. But I believe most likely there's a second idea. And it's, that is that it's simply because the imagery of an almond was a reminder to the people of God of the very lampstand that was stood in the holy, in the, in the holy place. The priest was to, only the priest, or the descendant of Aaron, Aaron or any of his descendants which, or his sons, which, to go in morning and evening and do several things in the holy place, but among them was to light the, the lampstand or provide oil for the lampstand, really. It was to be kept burning forever. So every morning, every evening, they would come in, they would add oil to this lampstand to make sure that it kept burning. But that lampstand, if you we read about its description in Exodus 25, 31 to 40, that it, it is patterned after, essentially, a flowering almond tree. So for Aaron's rod to bud and blossom and bear almonds was a confirmation that this would be the one who would be responsible to light the lampstand for the nation of Israel. And it, would be, it was clear to the other 12 leaders of the tribes, as each one received his rod, they could simply look at their rod and They could look at Aaron's rod, and they would know that they were not chosen. It was a humbling rebuke to every leader of Israel. In the rebellion against Aaron and Moses, remember, it was the whole nation had gathered, assembled together against Aaron and Moses. But it was not all that God had to say. He was not complete in his rebuke of them. We see in verses 10 to 11... Then God continues, but the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Thus Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Aaron does not get his rod back. Instead God instructs Moses to basically put the rod of Aaron back into the holy of holies back before the testimony and we find in other places that it's it's actually put into the ark of the covenant. It was to be kept there according by God's instruction as a sign, a symbol a, a, a visible instru- a, a, a visible reminder to all the nation Against rebels. That God was warning rebels. It was a constant reminder to future generations of Israelites that they ought not to rebel, that they ought not to grumble and complain against the Lord and against his chosen leaders. It was a warning to them that lest they too die at the hands of God, as the 14,700 and the 250 and the 3 did. Notice that early in verse 5, the grumbling that, is being, that, was, that God is trying to prevent was described as being grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And certainly we, we saw that directly. They were grumbling against Moses and Aaron as leaders. But notice here that the grumbling is described as grumbling against God himself. And you can put these verses together and realize, and just what we've, been, we've said on occasions, that to grumble against God's chosen leaders is to grumble against the Lord who chose them. To reject God's chosen leaders is to reject God who chose them. To reject, then, God's chosen servant, Jesus Christ, is to reject God who sent him and chose him. The rod of Aaron would serve as a sign to warn against those who would ever complain and grumble and rebel against God's chosen leaders. Now, Significantly, this, uh, when we think about this being placed in the Ark, and I just put a throw up a picture of the Ark of the Covenant for you, uh, this wasn't the only thing that was placed in before the Lord in the Ark, right? If you know your Bible stories, there are actually three things that are placed in the Ark. The rod of Aaron that we see here, but we see that we also know that a jar of manna was placed there, and then also the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you think about it, these three things that were placed inside the ark, they each served as a sign of Israel's failures to walk by faith in the Lord. It was a visible sign, put there constantly as a reminder to them of their failure to follow the Lord. Let me walk through it quickly, though it's probably pretty obvious to you. In Exodus 16, when Israel grumbled against uh, Moses and Aaron because they were hungry, that's when God gave them manna. God had then instructed Aaron to take a, a jar of that manna and place it in the ark before the Lord. In Exodus 31, 34, the first two tablets from God, remember he, God had told me, I'm going to give you these two tablets, you're going to put them in the ark. In Exodus 31, God gave him those, ar- those two tablets and just as Moses, as Moses came down from the mountain, what did he see? He saw Israel playing the harlot. They were committing idolatry by worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses, in his anger, threw those tablets down and broke them. Uh, yes. And what did God do? God gave Moses, a few chapters later, again, replacement tablets. Hmm. He gave him the law again, two more tablets. And those tablets, God placed in the ark. Though Israel grumbled about food, God gave them manna. Though Israel worshipped a golden calf, God gave them his commandments. Though Israel grumbled about their leaders, God gave them his chosen priest. The objects in the ark were a reminder to Israel of God's gracious provision despite their continual sin. Though they are rebels, he is their faithful God who saves and provides our merciful and compassionate and loving God is one who saves rebels he's not one who comes and saves good people he's a God who saves rebels he's a God who saves sinners and I hope brothers and sisters you we do not forget though we've walked may have walked with the Lord many years and though hopefully we've grown in holiness that we do not ever forget That we are rebels at heart. That we're sinners. And that we need our God who is gracious and compassionate and loving always throughout our life. Because there are always going to be those times, like Israel, where we fall short of his glory. But our God is faithful. And these signs in the ark were signs to Israel against the rebellion. But at the same time, as a reminder of God's gracious provision to them as their God. reminded of how all of us, though are rebels, yet God still saves us. God provides for us salvation through Christ, his son. And this leads us to one last effect of the rod of Aaron. And the rod of Aaron, in verses 12 to 13, it brings out the effect of that. It instills fear among Israel, instills fear among Israel. The grammar, uh, actually, i got to read it. <laughs> Let's read, Then, verse 12. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle, the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? The grammar and wording convey a sudden overwhelming recognition of their mortal danger. They had dared as a nation to rebel against the Lord's servants. They had even dared, according, back in chapter 16, to even uh, assemble together against Moses and Aaron. They were going to go and replace him. They were turning towards the tent. I mean, they thought that they could uh, approach the tabernacle themselves just like Aaron and Moses and the priests and the Levites did. And 14,700 had died because of that already. Now that God had affirmed his choice of Aaron as high priest and has set a sign against the rebels, warning them of the judgment that comes of anyone who would try to usurp or, or try to approach God and, and try to take uh, the positions that did not they were not chosen for, the, the leaders and the whole nation respond, responded with, with absolute terror and fear of God. Fear gripped them they really thought they were going to die. What is, what's going to prevent God from striking them down right now? He'd already shown them their guilt. He'd shown them you know, that he had chosen Aaron and not them. What would prevent God from striking them down right now? And they knew that the answer was nothing. Nothing would prevent God from being completely righteous and just if he had struck them all down. But thankfully for Israel, God is faithful to have provided for them one who would intercede on their behalf, one who would offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. Aaron, the one who had chosen God's chosen high priest, he was the one who was given to offer sacrifices on their behalf, who would offer prayers for them, and he stood right before them. In the next two chapters, chapters 18 and 19, we're actually going to see laws regarding the role of the priests in, and, and the Levites in, in the next two chapters, just reminding Israel, in a sense, almost answering the question, that no, you're not going to perish completely because you have priests and Levites who serve them to intercede on your behalf. But we, we learned today... As we look at the response of Israel, the, the, fear, of God, the fear of God, these verses are reminder to us that of the kind of fear that all sinners, including ourselves, should have when it comes to approaching God. In our world today, we like to think of God perhaps as a smiling grandfather who winks at our sins and looks the other way. We like to think of God as basically thinking, calling that which is good, which we think is good. But God is not one who winks at sin. God is not one who thinks what is good is what, simply what we think is good. He is a holy God, a righteous God. He sets the standard for what is good and what is not. And we answer to him whether we believe in him or not because simply by the fact that he is our creator God who in the beginning created all heavens and the earth, including us. And our response to creator God a God who made the world and made the and made us ought to be a response of fear. Of fear and in a sense, terror, but a fear that, that recognizes that we are helpless against to do anything before this holy God. Jesus taught about, <coughs> excuse me, taught about this fear in Matthew 10 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus believed in hell. He knows, he came to teach us that we should be fearful of God who is able to just destroy our bodies, but destroy our souls in hell. See, our God is a consuming fire. We see that in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He's like something that's, that consumes and burns in his wrath. Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 33, verse 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? I made pancakes yesterday. For the kids, over the pot, was, that thing was hot. I was like, "Oh, ouch!" Ooh. It was just a few seconds. <laughs> Continual burning is what every sinner will face because of their sin against the holy God. Who can bear that? No one can bear that. But that is yet God's judgment. The author of Hebrews further writes in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is the judgment that awaits all sinners. Last week I mentioned at the end of my sermon that every 10 seconds in the United States someone dies. Do you know since last week's sermon, 60,480 Fellow Americans have died and entered into eternity. 60,000 souls have died and entered into an eternity of either bliss with Christ in heaven or have entered into an eternity of eternal burning without Christ in hell. 60,000 if you fear God brothers, sisters regular attenders, members visitors do you know where you will be when it's your turn to die and most importantly do you know why why you have a hope in heaven or not If your answer to that question begins with, well, something that, well, that you have done, well, I've, or I've, and I've, you may be in danger of being on the wrong path. You are not saved by anything you do, or I do, or you've done, or I've done. You and I are saved by what Christ has done for us, that he died on the cross in place of us for our sins. And rose from the grave so that he would now, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you and me. Aaron, the high priest, is a type of Christ. We see this emphasized all throughout the book of Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. But the priesthood of Aaron foreshadows the priesthood of Jesus. We read from Hebrews 7 last week, in fact, but this week I want to read from Hebrews 9. In Hebrews 9, four, it makes mention of the Ark of the Covenant, the, old, the, the different elements of the, of the Old Covenant being centered around the Ark, which was in the temple, which was in the tabernacle, and eventually the, the, the temple. And in that Ark contained, uh, Hebrews 9, four refers to even the golden jar of manna, and the Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, in fact. It's so significant, these three things. And only, the, and there in Hebrews nine talks about only the high priest could enter once a year to into the presence of God to offer a blood sacrifice for himself and then for the sins of the people. And this the high priest would do year after year. And all this sacrificial worship, however, uh, the author of Hebrews reminds us was to be a pointer to Christ, our ultimate high priest. And we arrive at Hebrews nine twenty four and twenty six where we read these words: For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. Basically saying Christ didn't have to go into a tabernacle or into a temple, into some holy of holies or some holy place like that, that we think about on earth. A mere copy of the true one. That is, it's reminding us that the tabernacle, the temple are all basically copies of that which is in heaven, of the temple of God, where God is. But into heaven itself is where he entered, now to appear, that's where he is now, in the presence of God, For us, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's a lot said there. It's, a, it's, pretty, it's packed in. But Christ, in contrast to Aaron the high priest, to the Aaronic priesthood, the, all the other priests of the descendants of Aaron, did not have to enter into a temple or tabernacle, but he entered into heaven itself. He entered into the immediate presence of God. He did not appear before the manifestation of God's presence. He appeared in front of the presence of God. Christ did not have to enter year after year on the day of atonement. He entered and he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ did not have to bring in some blood that was not his own, that is the blood of animals, to offer for himself. He came in offering his own blood, the sacrifice of himself. He once for all paid the price for our salvation and he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through faith in Him. See, faith in God's chosen priest to intercede for our salvation is the only way to be delivered from the fear of God's judgment. It's not about living a righteous life. It's not about making sure that I go to church the, all the rest of my days. It's not about doing any penance. It's not about doing good deeds. It's not about giving money. It's not about saying a certain prayer. It's not about, you know, just any, wearing, a, wearing a tie on Sunday mornings. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone, who interceded as God's chosen high priest for all sinners so that we would not have to fear the judgment of his eternal burning, but can have the hope of the eternal bliss in, with him in heaven because of Christ. Well, I'll leave you then with three questions for our meditation discussion this week. In conclusion, uh, do you fear the Lord? I think that we come out of this room, the, the miracle of God, the rod of Aaron leaves Israel with that clear fear of God. Do we fear the Lord? As we look at this past, do we reminded that God judges rebels? He say, well, good thing I'm not like Israel. Check again, brothers and sisters. We, we often are like, bro, the, like Israel. We're too just like them, often failing God's, God's holiness, often given to grumbling and complaining, oftentimes grumbling against God, and not, really, not even realizing, grumbling about our life and realizing that we're really grumbling against God. Well, do you fear the Lord? If so, I pray that you, you have placed your faith in God's chosen high priest, Jesus Christ. How is grumbling about church? And I would apply it to grumbling. And I said, this is predominant sin here. When you grumble, I know it's, it's easy to grumble about church or church leaders, but that will affect you. It will affect you. And that's, Think about it. How is that grumbling, especially it's ongoing grumbling? Certainly, it's not wrong to see things that are wrong about church. You, you have eyes. You're mini- I tell all ministry leaders, if you have eyes to see, you're going to see things that are wrong, not right in the church. This is normal. It's, it's part of being a leader. You see things that can be better. But you're in a place where you can improve it and make it better. But when we just grumble and complain about it, when we murmur, we just continually express discontent about it. To our private, even privately to ourselves or tell others about it in the church that have not, can have no impact upon it that affects our relationship with the Lord thirdly, what can you do to have victory over grumbling then what, what can we do, what, what truths, what verses from scripture, what can we set as a sign, what can we set as a guard to help us to prevent from future further grumbling, complaining against the Lord these are some thoughts for hope, that uh, that I thought would be helpful for you, and I pray that maybe the Lord continue to shape and mold us. But most importantly, that all of us would um, would have would grow in our understanding of the role of Christ as our great High Priest, um, foreshadowed by Aaron in his uh, his God's choice of him here in our text this morning. Let's go in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Father, for your your mercy and your your love and your compassion and your grace towards us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that even though we are sinners and though we rightly ought to fear your judgment and your wrath, Lord, you have shown us great patience and love and forbearance. You've given us one who intercedes for us, your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he stands... He sits at your right hand, continually forever inter- interceding for us, that we would be saved forever, those who put our faith in him. Lord, may we, none of us walk out of here with any confusion about where our hope is for our forgiveness of sins. May we walk out of here sure that we are saved not by any that we have done, but all that you have done in Christ. And Lord, may you cause us to grow in our, our love for you as a result of our worship this morning in your word. Guard us, Father, from the attitudes that, that of grumbling and complaining, especially about our, our world and about the church even, about or against church leaders, that you would help us to have an attitude that, of, that seeks to trust in you, to walk by faith, and not by sight, knowing that you are a God who's in control of all things, and that you are faithful to provide for us exactly what we need as a church and as followers of Christ. We commit to you uh, this, uh, our response, Lord. Help us to meditate upon these truths this week and transform us through you, your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.